The Thought Lounge podcast is sponsored by Willow, a social networking app powered by open, honest conversation. Willow is a space where people can connect to local communities, individuals, and the world at large through open-minded conversations. You can download Willow for free on the iTunes App Store today. Welcome to the Thought Lounge podcast. You're listening to the sixth and final episode of the We Need to Talk series. This series is about presenting conflicting perspectives side by side with the utmost respect for one another. We hope that you've enjoyed it and that you'll let us know what you think on our Facebook page or by joining the conversation in person at a Thought Lounge session at UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, or by hosting wherever you are. Find out more about Thought Lounge sessions at thoughtlounge.org. In this episode, our guests will be answering a question on polarization in America, presented by Lori Sulpizio. Lori is an activist for women in leadership, a professor at the School of Leadership and Education Sciences at USD, and is the founder of the Lotus Leadership Institute. Lori's question is, the recent election has showed a more divided and polarized America than we've seen in a while. The tendency to make those with different viewpoints than us, the other, seems to be contributing to a fractured and fearful country. Is it possible to create a more unified country? What conversations are needed and how can we begin to connect with each other across difference? First up to answer this question is Lori herself. Enjoy. This is a tough question because I think I asked it before the election, right? And so, you know, the election itself for me, kind of personally, it was like a a hit, (laughs) shock a little bit. And I, I don't know how much background, but so doing kind of the women in leadership as my profession and my, you know, quote, expertise, um, it was a tough election to watch in terms of the actual election day and the results. So um, I think my answer might be a little swayed or tainted at this point. But at the core of it, um, from the place where I asked the question, I think what we need to do better is be willing to get at the core fears of each other. You know, and I was thinking about this not just in political landscapes and, and different um, kind of political ideologies, but even in our relationships, you know, our significant others, uh, families, friends, because I don't think we listen to each other very well in terms of what those deep needs are. And when we don't hear each other's deep needs, it's easier to um, just break expectations, not meet expectations, you know, kind of shatter hopes. And all of a sudden then you have these people who are living kind of in environments that, you know, you're not hopeful that your expectations are going to be met. You're not hopeful that what you want out of life is going to happen. And then I think we get hardened and I think we get, you know, the scar tissue builds up so strongly that by the time we attempt to connect, we can't. So I think it's, Unfortunately, right now, I feel like America is this place where we just can't even connect because we're lost in, in politically, like in rhetoric and in media wanting to have the most sensational interview or the most shock value type comment or reaction instead of being willing to just be real and say, what's your thought on this issue? How do we fix it? I don't agree, you know, and here's why. Um, we just can't have that real conversation because it's not sensational, you know, from like a media standpoint. So... I think the first part of it is we need to be willing to have conversations and hear what is the other's truth. And that truth often, I think, is lodged in what our fear is. 
and it's hard to hear someone's fear if they're fearful of you. For example, um, you know, with the kind of Black Lives Matter and the police brutality against the black community, it's hard for a white person, as a white person, to hear that a group of people are afraid of my, quote, people, right? The people who look like me, who are also white. I don't really want to hear that. So instead, I can find a lot of different ways to kind of blame and scapegoat. And so if I can hear that, like hear that fear and just sit in it and say, like, yeah, that must really suck, right? That must be terrible to live that way. Maybe we can come together and then think about how we might address the issue, right? Maybe as the others, we can come together and become now not you or other, and but we can be a we. And I think politically... You know, that's the problem. You've got so many divisivenesses. You've got the upper class and the lower class, and they're not willing to have the conversations because for the lower class to have some of their hopes met, it might mean a loss for the upper class because maybe they have to be taxed more or maybe they need to be willing to give a little bit more or maybe, right, for the, you know, public schools to be better in this neighborhood maybe this neighborhood might have to give up some resources or share. What does that mean for this, re- this neighborhood that's willing to give up? You know, are you willing to give up in order to kind of help the other? Or are we so locked in our own? So I think, um, I think it's really kind of seeing each other and hearing each other and then being willing to see us as a one on the same side as opposed to you're over there and I'm over here. And so... You know, Republicans, Democrats, blacks, whites, gays, straights, women, men. I mean, it's always like it's you and me. It's an either or as opposed to a both and. And can we get to that place where we can stand on the same side and say, you know, this would be best for us as a humanity, as men and women together. But the reality is, you know, for men, if women truly step up into more roles right, and CEOs, whatever role that would be, they're going to take the seats of somebody. And right now those seats are filled by men. So there is a big loss, right, for males in power if women were to all of a sudden take those power, right? So it doesn't mean that it's bad or good. It just means it's a loss, right? So all of a sudden, you know, there's less seats available if we look at it that way. That's one way to look at it, right? So there is that fear. And I think we need to be willing to talk about the fear that comes from the loss if we unite, right? If we share resources, if we share seats at the boardroom table, if we, you know, invite different people into this meeting, if there's more people of color, you know, kind of in the higher up rooms and and boardrooms, then that might mean there's less white people. So, okay, right? So is that seen as a loss or can we see it, can we acknowledge the loss? And like, yeah, okay, but then here's the gain. And if we shift our perspective to see us on the same side of the table, the same side of the fight, or the, then we might be able to accept the loss and own the sadness, but then move forward as a collective as opposed to an us-them, which I think is where we're at right now. And um, so I have two questions. Yeah, yeah. First would be, um, so you make the assumption that uh, people want that wholeness that mm-hmm. that common humanity to move forward do you believe that that everyone that everybody that that is a deep need you know i think if we'd be willing to get to our deep need yes i think 
I, I do believe that there is a, an inner peace right, that does come from more authentic connection with each other in the world. The challenge, especially for us here in America, is that we are so bombarded by messages and cultural ideologies that steer away from that and force consumerism, you know, materialistic values and getting ahead and, you know, the movies we see, the songs we listen to, the, you know, it's capitalism really, I think, is a big driving force of that. And so because we are still such a capitalistic driven society, I think that is our and America's number one value, we, whether we admit it or not. That's what, as a collective, I think we're driven by that. And so it's hard to not see, you know, as young people, you know, the athletes and the singers with the beats and the shoes and the, and, and want for that. Right. And so if I want for that, what does that mean for me? I need to get a good, right. And then all of a sudden I'm on that path to get those things that I think are going to make me happy as opposed to realizing if I can be fully me alongside you being fully you, like what else could there be? You know, that really is, would be the best kind of joy and peace. But then there's a reality, which I know I'm not naive enough to say, well, yeah, then people are hungry. Then people don't have homes, you know, not everybody lives in a home, you know, like this. So there is that longing too. But how can we, again, there's that both and, right? How can we not, we give up excess so that everybody can have at least enough, right? And I think there is enough resources for that. But what am I willing to give up? in my place of privilege, right? And, and the thing, I, I like things too. I like a nice bike to go on the road. You know, I mean, I'm not immune to it. Um, but what am I willing to give up so that somebody else can have a little more? It's like that Maya Angelou quote, you know, live simply so others may simply live. And I don't think we've been able to fully embody that yet. Where do you see these conversations taking place? Well, you know... I think one great place to start is universities, is the college classroom, because I think that I, I do, I have a lot of hope, I'm not that old, but in the next generation, you know, of, because I think they're more progressive, they're more open, they're more inclusive, you know, the younger folks. Um, and so I think that, you know, kind of place where these, you know, people in their 20s who are still figuring out what the world means and how they want to move through the world, that's where we can have those conversations because it's those folks that are going to be shaping it and the world. And it might mean that I don't fully get to see it until I'm, you know, a grandma and I get to put my grandchild on my lap and say, I remember when, you know, and you don't even realize how good you have it. I mean, that's my hope. Um, but I think in places where people are open, we can start to create that critical mass. And then I think those folks and, and us at any age need to be willing to have the conversations at dinner tables, maybe with the, you know, resistant aunt or parent, because perhaps it might just be enough to plant a little seed that might then grow, you know, in, in a month or a year. And so they're hard conversations. I mean, that's, I think, the other piece is that you know, with the other, am I willing to sit in and have this kind of conversation where I'm a little nervous, I feel uncomfortable, I know I'm being judged or people aren't going to agree and how can I massage that if I feel like I'm at that place? Um, 
massage the conversation and the, you know, the atmosphere so that we can connect and maybe we don't agree, but that's not the goal, but we at least can be like, okay, I hear you. Like, I hear what you're saying. I don't agree with you, but I'm hearing you right now. Um, and if we can start there. Um, and I think too, this place, I can't remember, might be Ram Dass, but says, you know, the, a relationship is kind of in moving a relationship forward is in the responsibility of the person who has a higher level of consciousness. You know, some paraphrasing. And so there's a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of self-aggrandizing perspective and thinking you're of the higher level of consciousness. But I think sometimes we know if we're at a higher level of consciousness, say, than, than somebody else. And then we take that responsibility and say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation. And I know I might get yelled at or might be told I'm stupid or my progressive hippie ideas, but I'm willing to sit and have that conversation. And I'm going to do it from a calm place and I'm not going to get triggered, right? Because it's an important conversation to have. And maybe just maybe somebody at that table who I'm not even talking to will hear me and it might make a difference. It's, and like th these kind of conversations, like what you're doing, you know, the, we, I think we have to just keep trying to have them. You know, they can start in our classrooms and then maybe those fibers will extend beyond. Yeah. So like, uh, I'll have one more, one more follow-up question. So in these conversations, um, we sit down at, we're sitting down at the table with our, you know, stubborn aunt. <laughs> and sometimes uh, they're so stubborn that, you know, if you deliver, if what you say is just a little bit too far ahead, maybe, mm -hmm. in your perspective, then uh, completely turns them off and they, you know, they fire back, they trigger. Mm -hmm. Conversation over, maybe next time you try to have the conversation, you're in even a worse place than you started. Any, are, do you have any thoughts on ways that maybe... Um, you begin the conversation in a way that has the most impact. That, yeah. You know, is most effective. I think that's a great question because in it, and maybe what I kind of, how I phrased it is as if we are preaching or telling, right? Those of us that kind of have this greater view and want to connect or preaching or telling. I think, I don't think that's, that's what we need to be doing. I think we need to come with curiosity. So we need to go to that stubborn, resistant, you know, aunt and say, Tell me about this. Why would you vote this way? Or what's your thought on the election? And what's your thought on all the police brutality? Like a truly non-loaded question and be fully open and willing to hear the answer. I think that's where we get snagged. We ask questions and we already know what they're going to say and we already know our response. Like we're lined up with facts and figure it right? As opposed to just, oh, I see that. Like I get where you come from and how you were raised and the climate of your parents and you're like, I can see where, you know, where and why you sit where you sit today. I don't agree with you necessarily. I have a different perspective, but you know, thanks for sharing that. And I think if we had more curiosity about the other, truly genuine curiosity to be willing to be open and learn, who knows what we might find out and then what avenues we might see as an opportunity for connection. So it's not a telling, but more go to that table and be curious about, you know, old aunt of resistance and like, really like, why do you, why you gotta explain this to me? I don't, I just don't see it, you know? And maybe they say something that is, interesting and even rings a bit true and then all of a sudden bam there's connection opportunity right there that was Lori Sulpizio on polarization in america next up is brian kim i guess this, this is what everyone's talking about right now um post-trump election 
I kind of think that the reason we're so divided, or we're so seemingly divided, is because of our two-party system. You, you choose between two two candidates. Um, so there is that us versus them that naturally will cleave a population in half. Um, so maybe the core of it is our two-party system. Um, but I also think that... Well, you heard that most white people voted for Trump. Uh, I think I think a majority of the white people in America voted for Trump. And I think that the Trump vote didn't necessarily come from rural working class or whatever. Um, it came from from a, from a large for a, a large variety of, of demographics. So maybe we aren't divided. Um, I, I actually know a few people who are uh, minorities and Ivy League educated and doing well for themselves right now who voted for Trump. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that we are that divided. That was Brian Kim. Next up is Mauro Cifuentes on polarization in America. <clears throat> I was thinking about this particularly after the election because this is the this is the narrative. This is the narrative that is um, becoming really entrenched and calcified in a way. Um, because I, I believe absolutely that rhetorically, right, in terms of how we talk about issues, that ideologically how we think about issues... Um, we are incredibly divided as a country. Um, and on the other hand, I think that experientially, like in terms of what people are going through on the daily, there are more people in the United States now who have shared experiences than ever before. I think that people's experience of not being able to pay to go to college, I think people having credit card debt, student loan debt, medical debt, you know, people having job insecurity, you know, there are, you know, middle-aged people who are supporting both adult children and aging parents. There are more people doing that, you know. So the the ways that more resources are funneling up to, you know, you know, we can call it the 1%, that means that there are more and more people who are dealing with economic and social forms of insecurity. So that means that we're actually at a time where we're being told that we're divided. So this is actually a, a, something that has happened really purposefully over the past 40 years. Um, there used to exist something called the fairness doctrine in media, which was basically this idea that if you're talking about a controversial issue, you don't have to spend equal time talking about all the different perspectives, but that you do have to do your due diligence in presenting alternative perspectives and explanations in more context. So the fairness doctrine was done away with during the Reagan administration. That was kind of a pet project of Reagan and his corporate cronies. I think that's the nicest phrase I can come up with to describe them. Um, and they wanted to get rid of the fairness doctrine because they saw huge potential in the 
talk radio and news show personality arena, which is what we've seen now. We've got Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, all those kinds of super inflammatory characters that are giving a super divisive political narrative to millions of people in this country without the opportunity to learn about any other perspectives because these are you know this is their information right and they're not being given information in an ethical way in a way that we used to legislate against before i mean the the fairness doctrine wasn't a law it was the um the fcc that was their policy and again there have been efforts to erode it in 2011. So there was still some language left in the Fairness Doctrine in the FCC that um, in 2011 they completely did away with. So there's no hope of restoring that Fairness Doctrine without going through a million hoops just to get something like that back. So I think that it's a division that is very real in terms of how we experience it. Like we're not able to talk to people, um, but it's it's fabricated. It's fabricated by by billionaires and their their media machines, um, and that I think a lot of that has also been focusing on identity-based issues versus coalition-based issues. So when we focus on identity issues, which I know are hugely important for a lot of people to have their identities recognized and respected, but when we focus on identities, it's going to become inherently polarizing in a way. There's always going to be an us-them that you can mobilize through ideas instead of, you know, a lot of issue-based organizing that was happening in the 50s, 60s, and 70s before we had multicultural education that got us to focus on identities. Here's this group of people, and this is how they think and look and, you know, live their culture. And then here's this group, and then there's this group, without really acknowledging how much, you know, inter-community contact there has been in the United States. This is a super diverse place. You can't be one group without coming into contact with different groups. And in those borders, people develop complex relationships to themselves and the families and communities that they come from, and they learn from other people. And so I think that, you know, a recognition that this divisiveness is fabricated and that there's a lot of money to be made off of this political divisiveness, that people are not actually experiencing things that are all that different from one another, and we need information to understand how other people are struggling, connected to our own struggles, so that we can see that there are things that are shared and there are things that are particular, and how do we find shared commitments to work on. So that's why I would really advocate for more of a return, not a complete return, but more of a return to sort of issue-based politics, right? Like, you know, here is... Uh, you know, like in in, uh, in the Central Valley, where I come from, back in the 70s, they wanted to put in a nuclear power plant for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. They wanted to put it in the Central Valley because they didn't want this nuclear plant in the middle of urban or suburban Los Angeles, so they go to a little rural place to do it. Well, there were all kinds of people coming out of the woodworks who didn't want this nuclear plant there because, you know, you have farmers who are invested in the livelihood of their land and where those water resources are going and nuclear plants just suck up water. You have agricultural workers who would have to work right 
alongside this nuclear plant. You have college-educated, you know, liberal environmentalists who, like, on an ideological level, don't want to be anywhere near a nuclear power plant because they think that that's part of what's going to, you know, destroy the entire human existence on this planet, right? So when you start with an issue, like, what is this thing that we want to have happen, whether it's keeping a nuclear power plant from happening, which they successfully did back in the 70s, or if it's, you know, ending the criminal justice system, or or if it's, you know, making sure that everyone has equal access to an education, obviously they're going to be diverse perspectives. But through organizing around these specific issues, you bring people together that have different experiences where you can teach them to find shared commitments and also teach them how to respectfully negotiate those differences and still act strategically to change law, policy, infrastructure, etc. So that's, that's sort of my idea about you know, how we can address the divisiveness. That was Mauro Cifuentes. Last up is Justin Brooks on polarization in America. Yeah, I mean, in my entire lifetime, I've never seen the country as divided as it is now. Everyone's kind of in their corners and kind of hook, line, and sinker buying everything everyone around them is saying. In fact, studies have shown that social media is largely just a giant echo chamber where you surround yourself with people with the same beliefs and then get more and more locked into your positions, which isn't healthy. Um, I think the biggest example of where it's been a downfall is if you look at the gun issue. Because you have on the one side this sort of people saying so fearful about any gun policies that it's like, I I object to every gun policy. And then on the other side, people saying, we need to get rid of all guns. Now, clearly, neither of those are the right position. And when you see a classroom full of dead five-year-olds, you think, okay, we got to do something here. But we're so locked in those two positions that you have nothing happening. You have no sensible gun regulations. You have you know things like waiting periods and things that most people would agree on when they talk about it are not happening because they're so locked into their corners of i can't agree with the opposition i can't have a compromise i can't do this stuff and i mean i've never i've never seen in my lifetime congressmen talk in the way that they do where they say things like i'm going to washington to stop the president's agenda like not i'm going to do something i'm going to actually just stop an agenda <laughs> and saying that out loud i know people did that before but nobody felt comfortable saying it as their job was just to be an obstructionist and so what do we do we do things like <laughs> like what you're doing and you know thought lounge and having people communicating and talking about it and trying to find common ground and but we're going in the opposite direction right now we definitely are I mean, and you look at this thing with the, the recount for the election, and of course there's the, the, the part of me that voted for Hillary Clinton that wants a recount and wants her to be declared president, and there's this other part of me saying, we're going down a really dangerous road here that, that could lead to a civil war, which has happened in other countries over things like that, like, like unclear who is the leader of the country, and now who can get the military on their side, and who can seize, seize power. So I think we've gotten a little bit lazy over the last couple hundred years by not having wars on our actual soil, that we're a little too comfortable that we can continue to do things like this and be this divisive and not have real consequences. And I hope none of those come. I hope we do find a way to create some more dialogue. I think it's probably got to start in school, and I think it's probably got to start in elementary school, because you can't, you can't do it just in college with college students. Because there's a divide in this country, too, between 
college students and people who didn't go to college. And there's, so there's been this kind of wealth divide, education divide, um, geographic divide. Uh, I was in this argument with a guy from Missouri a couple of weeks ago about the Electoral College, and he said, we, we have to have the Electoral College, or otherwise all the people in California will all you know, decide the election because they've got more people. And I was like, well, but your assumption is then that Californians all think the same way. And he said, they do. It's a bunch of narcissistic Hollywood and just started, you know, spitting out all these stereotypes for our like tens of millions of people in California. And I said, I don't know how to even carry on this conversation with you. I said, you got to come to California and, and go to the, the farmlands and talk to people and go up to Big Bear and see how people in the mountains think and go to South Central and see how they think and go to the Mexican border and see how they think. But he just had such an incredible stereotype that this entire state was just a bunch of lefty crazies and so i don't i don't know where we go from there when adults are thinking like that about their fellow americans but uh i don't know maybe we need an olympics every year that seems to be the only time we really bond together as americans that was Lori sulpizio brian kim mauro cifuentes and justin brooks on polarization in america the poser of the question today was Lori sulpizio and she said something outside of our interview that I think lies at the heart of the We Need to Talk series. What she said was, what will it take for us to replace judgment with curiosity? Thank you for listening to the We Need to Talk series, where we present conflicting perspectives side by side with the utmost respect for one another. Our mission is to foster the practice of intentional in-person dialogue within ourselves and our communities in which we listen to each person as if they're the most important person in the world, suspend initial judgment, recognize that creative conflict is good, speak authentically, and practice equity of voice. For more information or to print out a wallet-sized version of the Five Agreements of Dialogue, visit thoughtlounge.org forward slash podcast. And until next time, good thinking always.